0: Today on episode 15 of the e Podcast, 10x founder Claudius Jablonka on what he looks for when investing in early stage companies. Today's guest is Claudius Jablonka. Claudius is a founding partner at 10x Founders, a network driven venture capital fund backed by over 200 entrepreneurs and angels. 10X focuses on pre-seed, seed, seed, and Series A rounds, with a goal of building global tech leaders out of Europe. 10X has invested in startups such as SimpleClub, Magic, and WorkMotion. Claudius, it's great to have you on our podcast today.
1: Great to be here, Dion.
0: Very good to have you and talk a little bit about investing in early-stage startups with you. So maybe just to get started, I know that in 2020, you co-founded 10X Founders. What can you share about what drove you to start 10x?
1: Um, so I've always been fascinated with um, supporting founders and um, with the startup ecosystem and empowering founders in Europe um, to grow great companies. Um, for me, this journey started very early. When I was back in university, I uh, co-led a program called CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. It's a little program from LMU and uh, TUM where uh, back in the day uh, as a PhD and founder at the same time, I was also co-leading this program and we supported early stage founders out of university. And um, the crazy thing is that um, out of the 200 students that went through the program, about uh, 50 of them founded companies at the time and 10 of them became unicorn founders. So it was crazy. Um, and that's a lot. Yeah, and uh, and I always uh, really enjoyed that um, th- those those first steps and um, this this journey in the beginning um, of a startup where the team comes together, the idea gets um, you know shaped and finalized, and always enjoyed um, supporting founders. But back then, I was obviously a poor PhD student and founder at the same time, so I did not have the means to also support them financially. Um, but I was definitely very fascinated. Um, By venture capital since then, and this is now um, over ten years ago. And um, and then I, you know, after after several stations in uh, e-commerce, and then uh, joining Plug and Play, the early stage uh, accelerator from Silicon Valley, and investing uh, for them. um, I came together with some old friends that I had met uh, through my PhD actually, and through CDTM as well. And um, they've been founding companies for quite some time. Um, They've also angel invested uh, for several years. And together we decided to team up and um, join to build a really um, strong fund out of Europe, out of Munich, uh, with which we can support European founders in building global leaders. And we can build that bridge to the US. Uh, We can give them sufficient capital, but most importantly, we can also Uh, bring a network with us. Um, And we did this by uh, raising the fund from 200 angel investors who are also entrepreneurs, who are kind of the successful uh, second generation of founders and entrepreneurs uh, investing into 10x founders so we can support the next generation of founders. And this was the special setup that we had in mind and that we built with 10x founders um, to. Yeah, fill this knowledge gap in European venture capital, especially in the early stages, where this knowledge transfer from successful founders to the next generation is happening now with 10 founders.
0: That's awesome. And that also feels like that's the thing that sets you apart from a lot of other venture capital firms, this network driven approach that you've taken to getting your LPs, I guess.
1: Yes, exactly. You know, um, as we tell our startups, the cap table is very important. And we think the same is true for our Venture Capital Fund. It's essentially what drives you and it's uh, who's with you on this journey. And this is what we bring in uh, with our special setup. And it's always something that resonates super well with founders um, that they feel they are not alone on this journey. But um, where we come in, we really bring this wealth of experience with us together with the um, LPs, but also with our 10x Fellows Programme. Uh, We're really we kind of have a hand-picked group of some of our LPs, but also friends from the network that are serial entrepreneurs and unicorn founders that are really, really exceptional people and that we like to um, co-invest with and, and bring on board um, directly also into investments alongside the fund.
0: That makes sense. And I think your fund is mostly investing in pre-seed, seed and series A, is that correct?
1: That is correct. Our focus is uh, really on pre-seed and seed, and we occasionally, very selectively do series A as well, initially, and then we have about a bit more than 50% of the fund reserved for follow-ons, which can go on for quite some time.
0: Got it. And I think a lot of the EWAR fellows, when they're in our program or just graduated from the program, they're probably raising series pre-seed and sometimes even a seed investment, so they might come knocking at your door. What is it you're looking for in either the company or the team or the fellow itself uh, to make a decision on whether you invest in them?
1: For us, um, the most important thing about an investment is the team and the founders. For us, this is the number one priority before other aspects. And so we really, really want to get to know um, the founder well. Uh, we want to see um, his or her ability to uh, inspire and to sell the business and the idea and the vision because I mean essentially especially for the CEO this is something which they have to do a lot. Uh, they have to sell to investors to raise the next round and to grow the company further. They have to sell to employees so the best people join their company that may might be even more senior than themselves and uh, they need to um, yeah sell of course to the customers essentially and um, and have that ability to really explain precisely and concisely what sets them apart and this is something we look for this vision the clarity of communication the drive and the energy behind making this a reality making this dream actually happen so this is something that we're um, it's very, very excited about. We also like it if the founders are solving their own problem, uh, solving something that they've dealt with and they've struggled with for quite some time and have unique experience or knowledge about a certain topic. This is of course not the case for every founder, but it's definitely a big plus if uh, this is the case.
0: And. I hear you say we look for teams. I think this is usually quite a debate in the the world of venture capital, if you should back also solo, solo founders or mostly teams of founders. Do you, does 10x have a, have a big preference in that?
1: Yeah, we had definitely have a strong preference for backing teams. We occasionally also back single founders, um, but we feel like a equal team of founders that all bring incredible strength and complementarity to the company um, can really move things forward faster and in a more stable way. However, you know, it could also be said that a single founder has the advantage that the founding team cannot break up. So, but overall, um, we feel more comfortable investing into teams. And I think the same can be said generally about the venture capital industry. So I think it's also easier to raise follow on funding if you have a strong founding team. Several people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think the numbers indeed definitely seem to favor founding teams. And I know the your program. You probably know people come in usually as solo founders, especially in our pre-idea fellowship. How would you recommend people go about finding a co-founder? Is there anything they should keep in mind or places they can start looking for co-founders?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. So my recommendation would be for founders looking for co-founders to tap into their personal networks, into their university networks, for instance, or into their job networks from from the company that they worked at before. And ideally find people um, with whom they have a little bit of a longer relationship. Um, It can be like the strength of the weak connections. Um, So sometimes, you know, you might not have a very, very strong connection to somebody but uh, you've met a few times. Uh, you you have a feeling for each other. You respect each other, and then you decide to team up together. If there is some kind of I think this this bond or history or shared experience, I think it helps to more quickly uh, get to a, a higher level of trust that you are going to need as a founding team. I think you should look for somebody at eye level with you, ideally, and um, and look for somebody that you would gladly give 50% of the company to. I think that's very, very important that you do not um, look for somebody that will be content uh, with, uh, you know, a few percentage points, but you look for the best you can get. Because founding a startup is really hard. A lot of things can go wrong. So you need an absolute dream team to make it work.
0: I like that. And you mentioned gladly give 50% uh, to. Does 10x or do you personally recommend splitting equity equally among uh, founders? Or is there also a reason, for instance, to not have equal distribution of shares between founders?
1: Yeah, generally we favor equal distribution. Sometimes there are reasons. um, There are always reasons why you could split it in a different way, right? Somebody being more experienced, somebody being the CEO, somebody being the CTO. Uh, somebody having worked on it full time for uh, two or three months longer than when the others are joining. Overall, we think that the journey of building a startup together is such a long one and uh, it's not over till it's over, till the company is exited, IPO'd or bankrupt. And it's such a long journey in which, you know, there will be ups and downs and you want to have ideally everybody motivated In the same way, if you can achieve that with an equal split, I think it's great. If one founder uh, absolutely has to have uh, more and the others are absolutely fine with this and there is no latent conflict with that, then I think this is also, of course, a solution. And it's not all all clear cut and all uh, textbook uh, when you found a company and sometimes the situation mandates this or Uh, requires a different setup.
0: Yeah, I think founding teams often value what just happened in the recent past a lot when making these decisions, not thinking about the next, I don't know, 10 years that they still need to build a company together. Like those two months that you spend on it full-time probably don't matter in the scheme of 10 years. Absolutely. And you mentioned when you're looking for teams, you like people that are inspiring, that can sell, that are clear in their communication. What are any red flags you sometimes see in Teams? What are things that you're like, we're not investing in this startup? Um,
1: yeah, let me let me give you one example. Uh, mm-hmm. We visited a startup uh, that was run by a professor and uh, one of his former PhDs. The professor owning 70% uh, of the shares in the company, the CEO uh, being awarded 30% of the shares in the company, his former PhD and uh, the professor was not committed full-time yet and was only going to step out um, for two years out of his professorship so that he did not have to leave it behind. Uh, At the same time, valuing the company very, very highly, pre-money valuation of the round, um, which makes you ask the question, is his professorship worth more than the company or is his company maybe not worth the very high valuation that he's asking? Well, why is it that he wants to, you know, have a uh, the backup plan or why is he not yet committed full-time when the company is actually worth what he says it is? Uh, and he owns 70% of that. So this was a big question mark for us, but this could have been resolved. However, at the same time, uh, when we had the meeting, uh, he actually kept uh, on, on talking while sending the, PhD student to uh, make cake for us and coffee and bring it to us. And that showed us the dominance uh, was not only on the cap table, but it was a dominance in the relationship. And this was um, one one challenge that we saw in that team going forward, where presumably the CEO will have to do most of the work, but uh, doesn't seem to be um, as well respected uh, on equal eye level as the other uh, co-founder. So I think that was an interesting part where we saw a team dynamic, uh, where we said, "Mm, until this is resolved, um, it's probably not smart for us to get into this. Other things we see in teams, so one is I think an unequal cap table and uh, unequal timing distribution within the team, um, which can cause trouble. Other problems would be if you have a um, two similar founding team, let's say you have four founders and they are all business administration students from the same university and they found together because they've been friends already at the university and, um, there is no differentiation between the founding team members. Well, this can work, but is it the absolute dream team that you need to solve the biggest challenge or is one of them enough, um, plus the techie, um, or Do you miss something in the founding team? Then lack of perspectives of different angles and and viewpoints uh, that you don't have in the founding team. So I think if you have a little bit more diversity and complementarity in a founding team, that's a plus for sure. And then there are teams where I have the feeling that they are not entirely, you know, that they would just want to found a company, but they are not uh, committed to the mission and they haven't been inter- interested in the topic before they decided to set up a company. Th- that is for me a little bit of a red flag. Um, I want the team to have that deep motivation and that burning desire to fix uh, the, the the certain problem. That is my optimal solution while at the same time realizing, yes, there are also successful teams that are casted and are are uh, finding a new idea by researching and then they go on this new idea. and and uh, start something pretty much uh, like a, like a boy band or girl band that is, that is casted and then give them songs to sing. Others can also, of course, uh, work in certain cases uh, very well. So there are always exceptions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably the tagline of every VC, there's always exceptions. I like the girl band or boy band idea, but I understand that's probably indeed not the the ideal situation, you want someone who really understands the problem already before deciding to found a company.
1: Exactly. And otherwise, I mean, with the good examples I've seen where this is not the case, then the founders have done really, really good work in researching, have interviewed 100, 200, 300 customers, have taken the feedback they heard very seriously and then adapted the idea um, and the mission of the company uh, accordingly. And uh, you can sense that they are quick learners. I think that's the other option that can also work.
0: And the team dynamics is also interesting. I I think a lot of founders usually focus on their pitch and it has to be perfect. Maybe not even considering the subtle signals they give off to a venture capital to you in how they treat their team members in such meetings, for instance. Maybe asking them to get cake is uh, a little bit extreme, but there's probably other stuff as well that's definitely
1: But, uh, but overall, maybe one advice uh, to, to the founding team. So I really appreciate it, actually, if the CEO is taking the main load of the fundraising and the CEO is taking the initial one or two calls, um, him or herself, uh, and then um, the rest of the team is brought in for additional interviews um, to, to meet the VC, I think it shows confidence and it shows focus on building the product and focus on building the company. If I see like a team of uh, three, four people coming into the first uh, pitch, they are either usually inexperienced, lacking confidence or actually desperate. All of those are bad signals to send. So you want to have a good fundraiser, the F- CEO ideally uh, being the one taking the VC meetings initially and uh, and then giving carefully access to his team once uh, investors have signaled actual interest.
0: That makes sense. And I think that's a very good tip that our fellows can actually incorporate pretty easily. And um, so we talked about team being an important aspect of uh, your investment decisions. What other things are you looking for uh, in a pitch deck or in a conversation with a founder?
1: Yes. So uh, the other things we look for is um, the market size. We want the startup to address a big enough market because uh, it's important for us that if it great team sets on it sets on and embarks on a journey to build a company that when they have found something that in this overall market there is enough room for them to grow if they build something very specific in a very specific niche and there is not much room to expand from there or there's no plan or vision how you can expand out of that especially like let's say you're building a hardware device then you're particularly stuck at a corner oftentimes um, then whatever you are addressing and you're focusing on needs to be large enough. And by large enough, I probably mean that realistically, I must have a, a feeling that this company can make 100 or 200 million in revenue profitably um, in in uh, yeah something like 8 to 10 years time. This pretty much with the current multiples makes them a unicorn um, and makes them a billion dollar a valued company if they are growing fast and are profitable at the same time. So I think this is a kind of requirement and it's not so much about the slide uh, that you're building, but it's about the feeling that I have, whether this is actually feasible. Uh, so big enough market is is thing. And lastly, a differentiated product, ideally a product that is 10 times better, 10x better. Um, than what was there before because only if you have a substantial improvement over existing solutions only then will you get the, the slow moving customers to actually change um, their behavior or to uh, leave their incumbent service provider and go with you um, because they need to take some risk to work with a startup. So therefore your solution needs to be much, much better than what's was there before. And, um, and finally, we also look at defensibility. Is it something that has a long-term benefit that is sustainable where other entrants are deterred or the bigger you get, the stronger you get, let's say for instance, network effects, if you're building a social uh, network or platform, uh, you know, once you have a certain amount of users, there's incredible value in all of the possible connections on this platform and it makes it harder for others to enter being a very extreme example, I guess, of network effect, but um, you get my drift.
0: Yeah. Hey, you mentioned uh, the product should be 10 times better. And I think every salesperson in every company ever will say their product is way better than the competition. How do you get a good feeling of whether the product the startup is building is actually so much better than their main competitor, especially in such early stage when it's probably not yet so much better?
1: First of all, I think you need to be 10 times better than existing incumbent solutions. Usually, the startups competing against each other is something that is absolutely not clear who will win in the beginning. And the part of the market that they are, the startups are taking from incumbents is usually rather small. Let's say you're building a logistics company like a Sender. Uh, you can build a unicorn and build and have only 1% of the logistics market share or even less than that. And it's because the market is just so big um, that you can yeah grow indefinitely there and there can technically be um, two or three startups taking a large chunk of the market and building sizable companies in that space. Of course, at seed stage, it's not clear which one will, will win and they all look pretty similar. Um, so what I need is a solution that is in a big market 10 times better than existing incumbent solutions and I need them to invest into the best team so I need to have a team that is capable of executing this huge vision uh, to capture a certain part of that market. If the market is more narrow, if the market is smaller, it all gets more difficult. It all gets more challenging. And then you really need to look, okay, how many startups can this market sustain um next to each other? Is there is it a winner takes all market? Yeah, or is it is there a space for a certain number of companies? Um that sustain sustainably manage to stay profitable because the more competition you have, usually the lower your prices and the, the the more marketing you have to spend, the lower your margin. So it's definitely worth to also look at the other startups, how well, how good are the teams and how well are they funded to see what is your chance of winning in this market.
0: Against incumbents, for instance, if we stick with the logistics example, how, how can you measure if a certain startup is so much better than DHL or FedEx?
1: Yeah, I think what what you're looking for is cost, price, speed, how much time do you save in in booking a logistics uh, trip, for instance, how much cheaper is the trip itself? So there are, I guess, different metrics on some of them. Of course, you can never be 10 times better. Let's say you want to um, produce energy. Um or uh, store energy, you don't necessarily need to be ten times better than existing solutions because there is a kind of basic production cost that that is also there. But if you can uh, you know in a market where the 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 differences between different solutions are very small, if you can then substantially reduce the cost, for instance, versus existing solutions, that's probably enough in those in those cases. Um, and I think depending on what you're selling, you can find a metric in which you are already 10 times better, um, than existing solutions.
0: Yeah. I like that. It's, it's not in DHL example, for instance, that you need to be so much cheaper, but if booking a trip is way simpler with your app versus DHL, that might already be a, a reason to win in the markets. Did I understand that correctly?
1: Yes, correct. Yes, exactly. Because there also, you have a baseline cost, uh, the fuel costs something that the, the driver costs something. I mean, may, yes, maybe you can replace the driver with autonomous and so on, but you have some, you know, investment and in basic cost that, that will always be there. But um, if you can reduce that, great. But if you can, yeah, make this process so much smoother, so much easier to use. Uh, so much easier to learn for instance uh, for uh, new employees and so on then um, yes you're already creating a great value and i mean yes great examples for this are for instance sender or photo um, the logistics companies that just you know make it so much easier to photo for instance to book a book a container from somewhere in china to somewhere in europe and make it get there on time without sending i don't know faxes to chinese Uh, um, logistics companies in the province you've never heard of, right? Um, But to have that all in in one platform is is literally 10 times better than the existing solutions.
0: That makes sense. And I think you also mentioned one of the things you're looking for is whether a startup can make roughly 200 million in revenue in a few years profitably, you added. And I, I was wondering, is that word profit, has profit always been important for 10x when making investment decisions? Or is that also something that has to do with the recent economic climate? Like, have those dynamics shifted? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I think overall capital efficiency in getting there has, uh, or is playing a bigger role because we're unsure how much money can a startup raise in series A, B, C. Um, So if the market doesn't get better quick enough, um, they could reach a point where they are stalled and uh, cannot grow as fast as they plan to because they need so much money, plus we don't really like dilution that much as early stage investors um, when startups need to raise huge rounds. So um, this has uh, become a little bit of a bigger issue. That being said, uh, I think, you know, when I'm looking at eight to 10 years into the future and looking at the possible size of a company, the current market environment should not concern me at all. and uh, it. You know, it needs to be a profitable company in in that time frame, And hopefully by then the interest rate will be 1% again or 2%. So uh, everybody is, is happy and capital is easily accessible. And if the startup wants to grow further, that's fine. But I think at that point in, in you know, 10 years after founding, it needs to be able to stand on its own feet. And yes, um, you know, if it is the next Facebook and, and then, you know, you're happy to continue growing but you need to show very profitable uh, unit economics and uh, already numbers at that point um, that you can say, okay, yes, we are deliberately growing further, um, but our core business model is profitable and attractive. And this you need to prove. Um, otherwise, you know, if you're making 200 million revenue and uh, you have no perspective of becoming profitable, that's probably bad. Unless you're a food delivery company, I think they... Yeah, pretty unprofitable and uh, getting still some cash
0: yeah yeah apparently investors still like those
1: yeah at least uh, to 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 some extent yeah, yeah. i think uh, not the quick money ones
0: not all of them true and um i wanted to ask you've invested in a couple of pretty successful companies simple club for instance magic have you spotted any commonalities between the companies in your portfolio that have proven to be successful, for instance, in the founding team or in their company economics or something, their company business model?
1: Yes. So I think what connects the really great companies in our portfolio are really the outstanding founders. That I think makes the difference. Um, Simple Club and Magic are great examples, let me tell you a little bit about the founding team of Simple Club and what really inspired us to invest there. And so, you know, we could almost not resist. These are two guys that knew each other already in high school that has, you know, given afternoon courses uh, to other students because they were pretty good in school, pretty smart. Uh, so they taught other students uh, after school Then they made videos out of this on YouTube and they were incredibly successful with those videos. They had 500 million views in Germany in German language, oh, wow. uh, which is crazy because we only have 80 million people. So a lot oh. of students watch their videos a lot of times. And, and so they were, I would say, absolute celebrities, um, among students uh, of, among high school students in Germany and had a very successful influencer business, you can say going on. And, uh, when COVID hit and the schools were closing and nobody knew how this was going to go on, they said now or never is the time for us to change into um, a learning software, into a learning app um, and to really revolutionize the way education is done at schools because yeah, we don't know uh, if and how schools are going to reopen again. So they let go of their uh, team of uh, social media specialists and marketing specialists uh, running their influencer career and totally reshifted the focus on uh, building an app uh, for education and uh, for teaching the content you need to know in high school to kids and build a whole new company. So it was so impressive how they did not go for the fame and the success that they had already had, um, but they went for the mission and to build something greater and took a huge risk in doing so. They're obviously very impressive um, founders, obviously very impressive personalities that can very well uh, sell, that stand behind their mission, that uh, believe in what they're doing and a very, very impressive team. And everything they've been doing, they've been uh, doing very methodically, uh, checking the numbers. Uh, very closely learning from it, learning from uh, everything they could soak up uh, about building a company, building a startup, and you know this ability and willingness to learn definitely is a big plus uh, in this founding team. So yes, so they are incredibly successful with this, and they have conquered not only schools but and everybody in school is using their solution in Germany at this point. But now they've expanded into B two B. So yeah, that's I think a great example of, uh, you know, the, the team having, well, some challenges, obviously, as, as every, every startup, but um, solving them very well because they're so determined by their vision. And another example is magic, magic.dev. Um, it's founded uh, by Eric Steinberger, who um, followed this together with uh, Sebastian de Roe and he's incredible personality, incredibly smart brilliant guy um, who out of uh, college was was reading Facebook white papers about uh, AI. And then he kind of built it himself. Well, Facebook did not publish the code, but within two days, he had kind of re-engineered it and published it on uh, open source. And they wanted to hire him um, and he started as a working student. His boss said he was one of the smartest uh, uh, folks that he had ever had in the AI. Uh, team of uh, Meta, so definitely he worked something. with smart people. Yeah, that means yeah. something absolutely. Yeah, so you know, if, if experienced uh, people like that give you such a reference, it's incredible. Um, yeah, and uh, what's also really strong here is uh, his fundraising. The GitHub CEO and uh, um, inventor of GitHub Copilot, Nat Friedman, invested a million in his pre-seed round together with us, um, and. This also, I think, is a very, very strong signal. And he we invested also uh, together with Daniel Dippold, who who knew him and also gave a stellar reference on Eric. So I think this was also an absolute team bet. And uh, two months later, they already raised a huge, huge, uh, you cannot call it a seed round. I guess it was called a series A eventually. Uh, 23 million around um, by capital G because he was so capable of negotiating uh, Google and Amazon against each other that they ended up not only giving him kick-ass rates for uh, his computing power, but also competed for investing in his company. So um, his wow. vision and ability uh, to to raise and to sell, uh, I think, is exceptional, and um, that's why we invested here. and And I mean, you know, there's always some risks, but I think if the team is really kick-ass. Um, it's a big, definitely a very strong
0: point. It sounds like founders of both companies had indeed, yeah, how would just say that, like amazing skills, but mm-hmm. also just a lot of, I guess, interpersonal skills, like negotiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the influencing is also not something everyone can do. Uh, sounds like very good bets.
1: I hope so. <laughs> I hope still a long do. way. <laughs> I, it's still a long way to go, of course. You know, a lot of external things can go wrong. But as I said, if you have a dream team, you're 50% there.
0: Yeah. And you probably also had companies that did less well than you hoped they would. Is there any commonalities you might've seen in those cases or like in hindsight say like, yeah, that was, that was something we should have taken into account more when making the investment decision?
1: When there was any concern about the team, any gut feeling about the team, and then we convinced ourselves otherwise with further due diligence or reference checks that on other levels than the team or that that um, you know gave ourselves the feeling that we had to invest here even though maybe the team is not perfect or there is some question mark around the team something weird that we could not resolve but well the business looks so attractive or the traction numbers look so good or something like this and then in the end a problem comes up and it falls apart and you see, um, you remember what you have seen in the interview and you remember what you've seen in the uh, that glimpse, maybe or that uh, behavior of uh, sending your CEO to make cake, no, um, but uh, that behavior and uh, something that came through where you're like, oh, is that founder really so driven or is he really so competent or something like that, those I think are the commonalities yeah, or also when we see during the process that answers are slow or something in this uh, meta-signal sort of in the fundraising pro- process or the founders not really honest with us a hundred percent, those things are usually something if you ignore those signals, it bites you again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they might seem small, but they're usually. Yeah, I would just say that symptoms of a larger problem.
1: Yes, exactly. If you only have a limited time, um, so if there is a split second in which something weird happens or a gut feeling comes up, something is not something is off or are they really just so committed? Or, so this is, I think, a problem. And frankly speaking, the other thing is like if we actually uh, did not properly understand the business, this can also happen, you know, that uh, you don't. Uh, understand some regulatory risk around a certain business, and then as a generalist investor, then you're the one that's surprised when, you know, something does not go really as planned. Um, that's of course something that uh, I guess a risk uh, only a, a specialist investor can, can assess better.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, but especially the founder of the, the team dynamics or their personalities is something you can hopefully spot earlier. Great. I think that actually gets us to the end of this podcast. And uh, we always like to end with the question, if there's one thing that our listeners and our fellows should take away from this, what should they really keep in mind? And I know one of them, don't make your CEO get cake, but is there anything else you think they should take away?
1: Um, Yeah, I hope hope they don't hear this. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, me too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so so I would say that the takeaway is, um, in your founding team, you're setting up on a very very long journey together with your co-founders and together with your investors, especially once you get venture capital into the company. And if you, as a founder yourself, are noticing something is not working really well, and you're already realizing our that probably the business model will not work as well, and you're starting to see signals that uh, this the business model is not working, or you're starting to see signals that something is wrong with your co-founders and your relationship with them. Do not start. Yeah, this always uh, usually I say always start, but in that situations really really reconsider. You know, just because you can raise money doesn't mean you have to. So let me uh, give you a really nice anecdote from one startup we talked to which I found super impressive. So this was a startup actually of business school students together teaming up looking for an idea and um, and finding an idea and then they were interviewing 100 people in this space and then they started fundraising and uh, speaking to investors. And because they were really smart and uh, business guys and had a... The, the right uh, background in universities and internships and whatnot, they were actually able to um, to sell this pretty well. And they were getting term sheets and interest from angels and from VCs. But they kept at the same time on interviewing further customers. And um, they took the questions they got out of the VC interviews, really reflected on them and also challenged them with their potential customers. And they realized that what they had planned out to do was not going to work. And the customers were not really interested in this. And instead of just wrapping up the round and closing it, which they could have done, they said, no, stop. We are not continuing with this. And they informed us and they said, thanks for the conversations we've had. We've talked to further customers. We realized this business model is not going to work out exactly. Um and therefore we're not going to waste your time or our time. And we're not doing this business model. We will keep on looking until we have found something that is worth our time. And I loved it. I really, really admire uh, their maturity as founders of not taking the money, of not wasting years of their life on something that they were seeing signals that it will not work, but to continue to search for the right problem to solve and, and then properly start on this journey that will take years until actually see if it is a success or not. So so I think that was super, super, super impressive. And uh, I think the same is true if you feel, if you have a feeling like that in your founding team that um, you cannot get along well under pressure with a certain co-founder in the very early stage, break it off before you raise money um, and uh, because you're going to spend more time with that person than with your spouse. So make sure... It is uh, someone and a team that works really well together under stress.
0: That's really good advice, and it does sound like really high ethical standards amongst the team that you just uh, shared of the business uh, students to just walk away from the money and say no, this is not uh, this is not the business model that's going to make us all rich.
1: I loved it. I yeah, this only happened once to me, <laughs> but. Um, I really, really, maybe it happened a few more times without me noticing, but the way they communicated this was outstanding. And, um, I think, um, really a role model, both on the business model side, but you should do the same if you see signals on the team side. Um, that is the smartest thing you can do and the most mature thing I think, uh, you can do, this sets you apart from somebody just selling, uh, and, 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 you know, raising to raise.
0: That makes sense. I think that's a that's a really good lesson for people uh, to keep in mind. And I think with that, we are at the end of this podcast episode. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Claudius, and for your insights. I think uh, our fellows can learn a lot from them.
1: Great. Thank you, Leanne. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, really good conversation. Enjoyed it. And um, yeah. Yeah, best of luck to all the Evo fellows and team.
0: Thank you so much. This was Leon Borma interviewing Claudius Jablonco on what he looks for when investing in early stage companies. I hope you've learned as much as I did today, and I'm looking forward to welcoming you in episode 16. Thank you for listening.